Amen and amen, and good morning and good morning. How's everyone doing today? We good? Awesome, awesome. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn them on, tap there, turn there, turn to Acts 11. We're going to be in Acts 11, verses 1 through uh, 18. If you're new to the transit, today is your first time here. We're glad you're here with us. We go through books of the Bible from the pulpit here, and we've been in Acts since, um, since February, actually, so it's been a long run. A quick plug for the men's tree. Men, did you have a good time yesterday? Was that awesome? Yeah, it was awesome, right? And judging from the photos, it looks like all we did was just, you know, throw stuff and shoot stuff. That's not all we did, okay? So there was a theme. We were, uh, the theme was we had three talks on the theme of 1 Corinthians 11.1, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, uh, says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And we talked to kind, of, kind of about leadership, what true leadership looks like is first followership, following Jesus with everything you have, and then inviting others to follow you only to the extent that you're following Jesus. So it was a great time. We also got time uh, to abide with Christ uh, all, all 30 minutes in the woods. We all kind of, you know, went in, in, into the woods and spent time alone with Jesus. So it was an awesome time of fellowship with the bros, but also to some time of fellowship where we got to connect with our creator in his creation. It was a great time. So uh, if you weren't there this time, we're going to run it back here eventually. We got plenty of supplies and food uh, for at least uh, five more of those. So uh, uh, make sure you attend the next one. So um, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that the last two weeks in Acts, we've been looking at the Peter and Cornelius narrative. And if you were to take a wild guess of where we're still at today, what, what would you guess we're going to talk about today? Peter and Cornelius. Yes, you're right. Thanks, Don. Uh, you won that one. All right. So what we've seen so far in Acts 10 is we've seen one of the most beautiful moments in the history of the church. We see, we've seen the gospel break out of the four walls of Judaism, if you will. And by the leadership of the Lord through supernatural revelation, we see that Peter preaches the gospel to, Gentile, uh, to a Gentile Roman soldier pagan named Cornelius. And on the other side of Peter preaching, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, uh, Cornelius and his household, they get saved. The Holy Spirit fills his temple. The Holy Spirit's poured out upon them. And Peter goes, who can keep us from water baptizing them? The sign of the, the new covenant sign, not the old covenant sign of circumcision, but the new covenant sign of baptism. And they get baptized, okay? So that's what we saw these past two weeks. And the implication of what we've been looking at these past two weeks is we've seen is the work of Jesus was reconciling historical, these, these two groups that were historically opposed to each other, in opposition to each other, Jew and Gentile in one body back to himself. One diverse family from every tribe, nation, and tongue reconciled in one body to himself. And so this was great news. This was glorious news. But what we're going to see today in Acts 11, 1 through 18, is uh, something kind of crazy, if not sad, is that some people within the church were not too happy about what took place between Peter and and Cornelius. So what we're going to do, we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to mix it up today. Uh, instead of just reading the whole text uh, together, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to kind of go through it verse by verse. So please join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we just thank you that we get to come and, and worship you. That's why we're gathered, Jesus. It's about giving you the praise and the glory and the honor that's due your name. You've brought us here today, uh, Lord Jesus. You've gone to great lengths to give us your word, and uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and have your way with our hearts. We open up our hearts we want to know what your thoughts are. We want to know what, what, your, what your view is. We want, to, we want to know what your word is, Lord Jesus. And we want that to go from our head to our hearts. And so we posture our hearts to receive 
whatever you have for us. Open up our eyes to see Jesus and his heart for the nations, Lord God. And I pray, God, that Jesus would be magnified, he would be glorified and increase up here, and that I would decrease. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Let's stop right there. So what's remarkable here is how in the first century before technology, word about what happened in Caesarea with Peter and Cornelius already spread like wildfire throughout Judea. All the apostles and the brothers heard about this. So listen, if you think gossip spreads quickly in the 21st century church, we have an example of it happening in the first century church. And if I were to paint the picture for what's kind of taking place here, I think given the historic hostility between Jew and Gentile, I imagine that there, was a, um, there wasn't a lot of maybe pleasant discussion about what happened in Caesarea in the church, right? Like if you were to go on social media in the first century in Judea, the church, right? They didn't have Facebook back then. They were on MySpace. And so if you were to check their MySpace page um, and see what they're posting about, in one camp, you would have the pro-Peter camp. Like, Peter went, this is awesome, I found this article about what he did, and I'm going to post it and then share my analysis on it. The gospel's gone to the nations, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Like, this is awesome, right? That's a good thing, you should probably do that, if you're, you know. But then you had another camp in the church, and they were kind of the anti-Peter camp, and they're saying, I cannot believe the audacity of Peter breaking the covenantal laws that we have in Holy Scriptures. You know, how, how, how could these Gentiles be saved without first being circumcised? How could they also be saved without first repenting of their love of bacon? You know, like how could they be saved, right? They need to repent first. They need to do, they essentially need to become Jews as well as receive Jesus, right? That was the dissension, the disagreement in the church. And so all in all, what happened with Peter and Cornelius in Caesarea was kind of like a shockwave that rippled throughout the church where everyone was talking about this. Everyone was, uh, had their analysis, their opinions on it, and the church, was, I, I bet, was kind of shaken, where conversations that never uh, happened or took place before were finally happening. And what's important for us to realize is that the shockwave that went throughout Judea from Caesarea was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing. He wanted his church to start talking about things they weren't talking about. He wanted his church to start thinking about things they were never thinking about before it was the Lord's doing. And I personally believe that all the shaking that's taking place, at least in the church in the West, from my perspective, in 2020 and, and, and continuing, is, is the Lord's all over it. And he's refining the church in it. And he's purifying his bride, realigning our focus on what is truly important, a truly important what his heart is for his bride. And, um, and that's what I believe he was doing with the early church through what happened in Caesarea. And so verse one, the picture we get, everyone's talking about it. Before Peter even gets to Jerusalem, everyone already knows what happens. And then what we see next in verses two through three is Peter leaves Cornelius. He doesn't leave Cornelius a pagan. He doesn't leave Cornelius a Gentile. He leaves Cornelius now his brother in Christ. So he leaves his brother in Christ in Caesarea and he goes to Jerusalem. And instead of when he returns to Jerusalem, instead of him being welcomed by a huge banner, Mission accomplished, Acts 1-8, you know, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll receive power to be my witnesses throughout, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Peter, we've done it. The gospel's gone to the Gentiles. Like, instead of that, instead of celebration, Peter comes back to criticism and condemnation, verses 2 through 3. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, he's returning from Caesarea, the circumcision party criticized him 
saying this, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And ate with them. Yeah, it's fire. <laughs> and the craziest part of our text is that instead of, I mean, think about this, think about this. Eternal life in Jesus Christ, salvation came to Cornelius' household. And instead of weeping tears of joy and hugging Peter and saying, man, tell me what that was like. They sit him down and they give him a talking to, right? They interrogate him, right? And the sense we get is this was not a conversation where they're kind of trying to get more information from Peter. This was a trial. This was an indictment because if you look at verse three, again, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. There ain't a question mark at the end of that. Right? They're not asking, they're indicting. They're saying, you're, you're violating some things here, and we want to talk to you about it, and you explain yourself. And now here's, here's what's kind of crazy, is they have the audacity. I mean, Peter was the rock on whom which Christ was going to build the church. He was the apostle. And this is how hostile these guys were, we're going to talk about a little bit, um, to the Gentiles, that they would have the audacity to challenge Peter, sit him down, and start interrogating him, right? Like, you sit down, Peter, and we're going to talk to you. Where were you on the night of the 19th, you know? Uh, uh, who did you, how long did you stay at uh, Cornelius' household, right? Are there, is there any bacon left in your pockets from, uh, from uh, eating with, uh, you know, with Cornelius? Like, they were, they were interrogating him. They were angry. It wasn't a conversation. It was an indictment. And it really begs the question, as I was preparing this, man, how in the world... How in the world do you get to the point, and, and like, I see, we see this all the time, we see it in our own lives, where instead of being full of praise for people coming to know Jesus and being saved, you're furious about it, right? Like, how does that happen? I think it's a great question to ask as we read this text. How do people get, and the circumcision party, they're Christians, they're believers, they're brothers, they're Peter's brothers. How do we get to that point? And... Um, I think it's two things. I think it's two things. And we see this in the text. Religious idolatry and ethnic superiority. Religious idolatry and ethnic superiority. Well, we're introduced in our text, uh, we're introduced in our text to a group within the early church called the Circumcision Party. Now, quick side note, if there was a, ever a party a Gentile did not want to get an invite to, it was that party. Um, and here's what we know historically about the Circumcision Party. These were a group of Jewish Christians within the early church who insisted that in order for the Gentiles, non-Jews, to be saved, that they had to get circumcised and follow the law of Moses. They had to essentially become Jews and observe the same holidays, the dietary laws, all that stuff. Acts 15.1, we see this later on in Acts. This is the influence, the level of influence uh, the circumcision party had in the early church. But some men came down from Judea and we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's Jesus plus Judaism. Acts 15.5, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And we see this is a beautiful thing, that Pharisees are getting saved. Right? That's amazing, right? That's a brother in Christ here. It says a, front, a, a brother in Christ from the party of the Pharisees, but we still see that these Pharisees were still wrestling with the tension of, of how much of the, the old covenant leaks into the new covenant, right? This is a new era, a new thing that Christ has ushered in, and there's still that, there's still that tension. 
of how much of the old infiltrates the new. But when you talk about salvation, and we're going to talk, we're going to see what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. My, 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 when you try to add to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that's a no-no, right? And the salvation equation for the circumcision party was Jesus plus Judaism equals justification. To follow Jesus, you had to become a Jew. That's why the circumcision party was also known as Judaizers. It's a Greek verb meaning to live according to Jewish customs, to kind of force Judaism upon Gentile converts to Christianity. And this was a cancer that spread throughout the early church. We see, I mean, poor Paul. Paul had a, a hard calling. He saw the Lord do some awesome things. But Paul, in his missionary journeys, he'd plant these new churches, preach the gospel uh, uh, of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone. People would get saved. He'd establish churches and elders in those churches, and he would leave, and he'd go plant other churches. And lo and behold, who would come behind him? The circumcision party would come behind him and begin to try to unravel and undo everything he just did. That's why we have Galatians, Okay. So if you ever want to figure out and do a deep study on what this looked like in the early church, go study the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the church of Galatians. He's like, who has bewitched you? Like, who's placed a wool over your eyes that you think you need to add all of these things in? You're saved. Jew and Gentile alike, the same Jesus that got the Gentiles into the door, the same Jesus that got the Jews into the door. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the light, he's the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection, the life. It's all about him, not about these external signs anymore. And so simply put, what we know about the circumcision party, from here on out, I'll call them the CP, because I don't want to say that more than necessary. Um, They were still a bunch of legalists at heart, thinking that they could contribute and add to salvation. That's what leads Paul to say in Galatians, you are nullifying the cross where Jesus says it is finished, if you think you can contribute anything but your sin to that finished work, you're, you're nullifying the cross. In the sense we get, this is, this is how religious idolatry kind of manifests today, is they were more passionate about the rules and the rituals of their faith than they were the redeemer of their faith. And so if you're, if you're passionately in love with the rules and the rituals, and the traditions, more than your Savior, when people violate your understanding of the rules, you freak out. You go bananas, right? You go, you go ballistic. And uh, um, I couldn't help but chuckle of like, you know, if, if the CP is ever having like a board game night and you play a board game with these guys, like how awful that would be, right? You ever play a board game with someone who, like, the end goal for the board game for them is just obeying all the rules of the board game? It's like not having fun, you know, or, like, winning in friendly competition. It's like they might as well put on a referee outfit and have a whistle whenever you break one of the rules, you know? Anyways, uh, that's not the end goal of our faith is following the rules. The end goal of our faith is love of Christ and love of others. And Jesus says, if you keep that priority, if you love me, then out of that well, you will obey me. Don't obey me to get loved. It is you are loved. Return and love with me and obey me. It's relational. It's not about religion and rules um, anymore. We love God's law. And the reason we want to obey and live holy lives and be pleasing unto the Lord is because we love him and we don't want to displease him, right? But it's a totally different game when we're more in love with the rules and the rituals than our Redeemer. And religious idolatry, I think, 
I think it simply could be simply defined as this, is misplaced convictions. Religious idolatry being misplaced convictions. Where we major in the minors. We major in the minors. Um, I, uh, I had a lunch with a, a couple pastors a couple weeks ago, and one of the uh, pastors there had a member meeting that night, and um, there was a division, a dissension that kind of hap- was happening in his church, and he had to address it. People kind of on two sides of the aisle, and he had, he had to address it. And I know what he was, he was saying, and, and, and if you're watching this, I love you, and I, and I did say this to you, let the record show that, and he told me, I, anyways, told me I could share this. Um, he goes, he goes, I'm just happy that, you know, whether they're on this side or this side, that my congregation, they're, they're people of strong convictions. And, uh, and it, wasn't, it wasn't even anything really scriptural. It was like essentially like the color of the carpets. It was, you know, whatever. And I said, and I said brother, can I just challenge that? I was like, I have no vested, I don't give a rip if, you know, believers in Christ have strong convictions about colors of carpets. That's actually idolatry. If we, have, if, we, if, our, if we, as the people of God, have strong convictions that are misplaced, that's idolatry that needs to be repented of. And if we're more passionate and more vocal on social media, in the congregation, about our stance on certain issues, then we are about the love of Christ and the gospel. Simple word for that is idolatry. And if we get more angry and more fired up and more passionate about peripheral issues, that's idolatry, right? When what we should be, and this, is, this was my, my response was, hey, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us what, what the church needs to keep as first importance. Go read 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to figure out what's the apex. Greatest commandment, Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor yourself. And then the thing of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says this, for I delivered to you as first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then he talks at length about the resurrection and the hope of coming glory. I delivered to you as first importance, Jesus Christ, his, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, his session, seated on the throne over all things and his return, the good news of all that Jesus has done. Not these secondary issues, right, that we we kind of come against people when they violate our understanding of certain distinctives or, or whatever. So if we're passionate about the rules, we'll get angry when people kind of violate those rules. Like Peter, this is what the CP was all fired up about, was they violated their understanding of the rules. According to them, they thought that Cornelius and all of his household had to get circumcised and become Jews and then also receive Jesus. And so instead of celebrating that they were believers and Christians, and they love Jesus, and then maybe secondly saying, hey, what do you think about, should, should they have this? They were fired up and angry about it and exporting. And this is the difference between legalism and personal legalism. Legalism is when we export our convictions that are extra biblical onto other people. That's legal. personal legalism. You know, maybe some of you are here like, I don't drink alcohol and I don't watch The Simpsons for the glory of Jesus, right? That's, that's personal legalism. That's a personal decision you're making. Now, when you begin to export that and say that all Christians throughout all history, throughout all time, should never drink alcohol, which would condemn Timothy when Paul encouraged him to drink wine and Jesus and all the disciples that gave. When you tell all Christians not to drink alcohol or no Christian should ever watch The Simpsons and they're sinning, you know, that's a whole different story. You're, you're going a step farther, okay? 
And I'm not nullifying that there are crystal clear things that are not okay for believers to do, but I'm saying there are extra-biblical, personal, legalistic things that we in our weaknesses need to maybe need to place on ourselves. Maybe some of us need to stop watching The Simpsons, and maybe some of us need to stop drinking, okay? Right? But when I begin to export these extra-biblical things onto other people, that would be called legalism versus personal legalism, right? Which is a desire to live a holy life unto God and to kill the flesh. And so if we're passionately in love with our Redeemer and living to please Him, when people come to know Him of every tribe, nation, and tongue, we're going to celebrate, we're going to cheer, we're going to rejoice. Why? Because that's of first importance. Winning souls to Jesus forever, that's of first importance. And I think with 2020 and 2021, my hope is with the refining that's taking place with the church is the Lord's been shaking up idols that, that have been of things of primary importance for us, and he's shown the tomfoolery of us clinging to those and saying, let go of those and be about your father's business and what my heart is truly about. Being about loving me, okay? And making me known in word and deed. So that was religious idolatry. And I think the, the second way this happens, the second way you can respond in, in fury rather than full of praise is through this sense of ethnic superiority. If we look at the charge in verse three of uh, the, the circumcision party, this is what they said. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Ate with them. The sense you get is kind of the dis, like a low-level disdain or disgust. Um, he doesn't, they knew, they knew, they knew Cornelius' name. They didn't even name him, right? They didn't say, they, they said they, they called him um, by his lack of covenant symbol, if you will. That was almost like an ethnic slur they were using there, uncircumcised men, and you fellowshiped with them. You ate with them. How could you do that? And historically, we, we know this to be true, is that not all Jews, but we know that there was a majority of them that viewed themselves as superior to all non-Jews, that Gentiles were kind of inferior. And what I, what I talked about last week, it was kind of like uh, all non-Jews kind of had like a spiritual COVID, if you will. Like they were unclean, right? Like, like, and so like, like no joke, like, hey, we got to keep six feet apart. I cannot associate with you. I got to wash my hands after like, you know, I touched something that you touched. Uh, we got to do contact tracing. If I came into contact with you and then I go talk to my brothers, like, and then I have to quarantine, all that stuff is, is stuff that they were doing. And, um, and listen, this was not God's law. These were extra biblical commands. What the Pharisees had done, the religious elite had, had done is if, uh, if this podium was the law of God, in the Old Covenant Scriptures, there were a ton of extra-biblical, kind of cultural, extra-biblical, pharisaical fences around the law, right? So if the Scriptures talk about dietary uh, laws, eating what is clean and unclean and all that stuff, then they took it a step further and they said, well, I'm not even going to associate with anyone who doesn't hold the same dietary stuff as me. So they took it a step too far. They took abstaining from unclean foods, became abstaining from unclean People And there was this fence, extra-biblical fence, or in that time in the first century that the Pharisees had added that made things socially taboo. And that was the indictment of the circumcision party. And so we see in Acts 28, we looked at this last week, this is what Peter said. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But I love this line, but God has shown me that I should never call any person common or unclean. God is calling him to repent of is a sense of ethnic superiority. Stop calling him unclean. Don't you dare call unclean what I've called 
clean. And then Acts 10, 34 through 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, that means for everyone, anyone who fears him and does what is right and is acceptable to him. And so those statements that Peter made were revolutionary for the first century Jews and Jewish believers. Those were revolutionary statements because a lot of these Jews were raised with a, with a low-level disdain for Gentiles, for non-Jews. And, and this is what we see Peter, the apostle Peter, even after all we've looked at in Acts, excuse me, when Peter goes uh, to, to Antioch, this is what we see Peter do. Okay, after all of this, this is how ingrained this was for the Jewish Christians. Look at Acts 2, 11 through 14. This is Peter in our text, uh, uh, further on uh, when he goes to Antioch. But when Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul talking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So we see Paul saw Peter hanging out with his Gentile brothers in Christ hanging out with them, and then the circumcision party came, and all of a sudden, Peter withdrew and said, oh no, and what Paul is saying here is Paul, the picture we get is Paul is nose to nose with Peter, essentially, and saying, what in the world are you doing? You can't do that. You just withdrew from your brothers in Christ, showing partiality to your Jewish brothers. Like that is, and then, and then he says this, he says, that is not in step with the truth of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're on an equal standing with your Gentile brothers, bro. You're on an equal standing. And when, with you, when you withdraw, you're communicating some things to your Gentile brothers. You better not communicate. Instead of being lock in step, meaning your actions, what you're doing, lining up with the truth of Jesus, you're actually, the, reverse, the flip side of the coin here, what Paul's saying is, you're actually lock in step with a lie from the pit of hell. You're still playing an old game. Christ has redeemed us from that, and he's reconciled us in one body. This is the truth of the gospel, Galatians 3, 28 through 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, watch this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so salvation this is the argument he's making in Galatians, is not based on being a biological descendant of Abraham. Even in the Old Covenant, this is the argument we see in Romans and in Galatians, even in the Old Covenant, it was always about faith. It was about faith. Those who are of faith are truly Abraham's descendants, and it's still the same today. The true offspring of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And so a simple application of our text would be this, is, is we need to search our hearts and ask the Holy Spirit to come and reveal to us where we as followers of Jesus view others of a different ethnicity or race differently, differently than us. And then a simple question I'll leave us with would be this. Say right now the Holy Spirit comes. Boom. And you hear like, an, uh, like and reveals to you specifically, you get an audible call to sell your house, 
pack up your belongings, you and your family, and go to a certain people group, a certain nation for the rest of your life and preach the gospel to them. Would there be a preference where you go? Would there be a preference? Not like, like, I mean, obviously, like, Lord, send me to Hawaii, you know, like, you know, <laughs> not geographical preference. I'm saying these people versus this people. Christ died for all. All are worthy to receive the invitation to his table. If there's a preference in our hearts, that needs to be repented of today. Right? That, that needs to be a conversation that we need to go to the Lord with personally within, in our hearts, right? Because if our God shows no partiality and he wants every people at his table, then we need to align our thoughts with his thoughts. And we need to be in step with his truth, the way he sees the nations. Amen? And so it begs the question, how do those hearing, hearing what Peter's about to say, change their views? And what we're going to see in our text, like, is there hope? Is there hope for the circumcision party, the religiously idolatrous? Is there hope for those who think they're ethnically superior to others? And what's beautiful here in our text is um, what Peter does next is he doesn't defend himself. Peter doesn't defend himself. We're going to look at verses 4 all the way to 17. He's going to retell something we've looked at for the last two weeks. And what he's going to do is he's not going to tell the circumcision party all that, he'd done, all that he has done. He's going to tell them all that the Lord has done. He's going to tell them how the Lord views the Gentiles. And the implication that Peter is going to put before them is if you are criticizing me for doing something wrong, I didn't set all this up. I didn't do this. It was the Lord. So if you have an issue with it, you've got to take it up with him. And verses 4 through 17. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Peter's finally given the mic and he's able to defend himself. And he says this, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely. I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction, making no distinction. For these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. And he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the beginning, talking about Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And immediately what we see is Peter points up to all the work of the Lord and all the words of the Lord, 
right? Look at everything that Peter says the Lord did. Look at all the works of the Lord. He says, there was an angelic visitation by Cornelius. I had a vision where I wrestled with the Lord. I argued with the Lord three times. And then I heard directly the voice of God from the Holy Spirit. Go with these men, make no distinction. And then as I'm preaching, the Holy Spirit fell upon them in the middle of my sermon. And then if that wasn't enough, he doesn't just talk about the word, the work of the Lord. He says, and I remember, watch this, the word of the Lord, the word of the highest authority in the land, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, my Lord and your Lord. And he said this, and he said this, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, you read uh, the gospels, is Jesus Christ who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying, the implication Peter's making here is saying, Jesus did this. You got an issue with this? You're furious about this? You might need to check your stance on things because it's not lying up with Jesus because Jesus is the one who baptized in the Holy Spirit. You're baptized, when, you're, when you come to know Jesus and you're filled, the baptism of the Spirit and there's subsequent fillings, if you will, whatever you want to call that, but I would believe that conversion, you're, you've received the baptism of the Spirit, that's Jesus is doing. And that's what Peter is saying here. To the extent, this is what he makes unabashedly clear, I have nothing to defend because I really didn't do much. I really didn't do any of this, right? And Peter concludes to the extent, and it's so, it's so strong that Peter says in verse 16, he says, who am I to stand in God's way? And one of the problems we have today is this, is often we're so convinced we are right. We're not so convinced we're right, we go a step further. We're convinced that, the, that my convictions are also the Lord's convictions. Sounds like a chopper is landing on the roof right now. Uh, what is that? <laughs> Anyways, right? We, we have the audacity with certain ways we view things or view people to think all the time that everything that I think, everything I believe, actually the Lord sees that. And these dudes just had a wake-up call. Just had a wake-up call, right? And... Um, they sincerely, I believe these guys who are opposing Peter, sincerely thought God was on their side. Sound team, do you know what that noise is? Is that anything on our end? Okay, cool. I'm going back to like the predator, get to the chopper, Arnold. Anyways, uh, oh, you got it? Okay, yes, okay, thank you. Probably wasn't distracting you. That was distracting me heavily. All right, sorry. Side note, um, <laughs> I've been on decaf coffee for the last like 10 days, and so... Uh, I get easily distracted now. All right, focus, focus, Nick. All right, here we go. Uh, preach it on decaf. All right, here we go. Come Holy Spirit. Verse 18, this is what happens. When they heard these things, the circumcision party, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They realized in this moment that the position that they were firmly convinced about wasn't actually the position of Jesus. They were wrong. God was right. Now, anyone here married, right? Husbands, uh, have you ever gotten into a strong disagreement with your wife before? You know what it's like to, you know, you print out some charts and some graphs and you have the evidence like the spoon that was misplaced and you have your arguments, you call in your witnesses, all this stuff, and, and you prosecute the case and it's airtight and you're totally convinced that you have nothing to repent of. And then your wonderful wife speaks truth and shows you the error of your ways. And all of a sudden, maybe this happens to me quite often, hopefully you can resonate with this, and in an instant you go, oh my gosh, 
I was completely wrong. Like, I, I'm a moron. Like, I don't, know what I, was, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I thought I had an airtight case here. And then once someone responds, you realize, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Yeah, I'm totally wrong. Like, but the response is this, right? Husbands, you fall silent, right? You fall silent. And this is what happens to, uh, to the Judaizers. In verse 1, everyone in the church is talking. Everyone in the church thinks they have a right to their analysis on events. They're talking. They're trying, This is my view on this. In verse 1, they're all talking. They're all fired up. And then in verse 18, they shut up and they fall silent, right? Often that's a great place for the church to be. Often that's a great place. The sound of silence is a great place for the church to be sometimes, Right? And this is what happens, is they realized they were wrong, they fell silent, but this is beautiful. We see the beauty of what, the, the, what Jesus can do with anyone. If you're a Pharisee or a Gentile, what Jesus can do in your heart. And this is what happens, it says they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, opened up their hearts to receive what was true, and they actually received it. And that's the beauty of when we open God's word and we uh, want to, from the pulpit, read his word and his truth, right? And that's why I always want to read the word is because anything that I say that you're questioning, just go to the scriptures because I'm not always right. Like I'm, a, I'm just, a, you know, uh, I'm doing my best up here, but speaking on behalf of the Lord is a, is a high calling. But that's why I want it not to be my thoughts. I want it to be God's thoughts. And so when we preach the scriptures, we want to open up our, our hearts and our minds to receive God, what is your thoughts on said issue? What do you want for my life? And then, and then when we do that, this is one of the dangers of, of, of coming to a worship gathering and, and, and opening up the word is we can either harden our hearts and dig in our heels and double down on continuing to live in unrepentance or we can soften our hearts and repent. And with the, uh, with the, the circumcision party here, they didn't double down and argue with Peter. They fell silent. The Holy Spirit convicted them and they repented and they aligned their thoughts to the thought of their Lord and Savior and say, Lord, let my thoughts and my heart be your thoughts and your heart. So I'll conclude with 1 John 1, 5. I love this verse. Just a calling today, an invitation of how we're to live our lives in light of the gospel. That which was from the beginning, and band, you can, you can come up here, band. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and was made, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too, watch this, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So what we see here is the proclamation of the gospel. On the other end of the proclamation of the gospel, we proclaim these things to you. Why? What Paul, what the apostle John here is saying is so that whoever's on the receiving end, uh, any ethnicity, any tribe, any tongue, anyone on the receiving end of that could enter into fellowship with us, the church, the one body that Jesus has reconciled, and also reconciled in fellowship to the Father. Amen? Amen. So uh, let me close us in prayer. We'll sing one last song of worship, and then I'll, I'll end our time with communion and a benediction. So Father, we come before you grateful. 
we quiet our hearts before you, uh, Lord Jesus, and uh, we just want our hearts, Lord Jesus, uh, to look like your heart. We want our, our hands and our feet to look like your hands and feet, Jesus, to go where you want us to go and to say what you want us to say, Lord God. And so, uh, Holy Spirit, come and, and bring conviction where there needs to be conviction in our hearts, wherever there's any kind of religious idolatry where we're more in love with church culture or side issues, would you turn our hearts to see Jesus and how far greater it is to know him and to love him and walk with him? And if there's any partiality or any uh, kind of a semblance of ethnic superiority in our hearts, Lord God, would you purge that from us now? And maybe we're blind to it, God, in ways that we're blind to it. Holy Spirit, bring revelation, Lord Jesus, bring revelation. But most importantly, fill us with love, Lord God. Romans 5, when, you, when your spirit is poured into us, it's the spirit of Christ, the love of Jesus poured into us. And so would we, would we all leave here today filled with the fullness of your love, Lord God, for ourselves and for our fellow man, Lord Jesus. And so we bless your name and we thank you for all that you've done in Christ Jesus. Teach us what it truly means to follow you and to know you, Jesus, and make you known. And all God's people said, amen.